What's up, y'all? You're listening to the first ever episode of Your American Lands, a conversational podcast where we talk to the various scientists, firefighters, land managers, and all around fascinating people at the Bureau of Land Management. Here we talk about all the things the Bureau does, conservation, recreation, and even commercial uses for public lands. And today we're talking about a topic that easily touches on every aspect of public land management, wildfires. Our guest is Grant Beebe, the Assistant Director for Fire and Aviation at the National Interagency Fire Center. We talk about how the government fights and prevents wildfires, climate change, and how complicated and dangerous this work can be. Now, before we jump in, let me just say that we're still feeling out how we want to do this podcast. We would love any input you may have on topics, guests, or even formats. So don't hesitate to reach out to at BLM National on Twitter and let us know what you think. So for now, let's jump into our season one, episode one conversation with Grant Beebe. Grant, thank you for joining us today. So how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, Matt. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, so like, let's just jump right on into it. So um, I, I know you are you you work a lot with wildfires over at the Bureau of Land Management. Why don't you? Um, I, and I know it encompasses more than just like one state, and even like not just like the Bureau of Land Management. It's a lot larger than that within like the Department of Interior. So let's just jump right into it. Tell everybody who may not be familiar with how things are structured over here. Um, just talk a little bit about how you joined the Bureau of Land Management. How did you get involved in wildfires? Okay. Uh, well, let me, let me start with that. So uh, I was back in college um, studying to be a teacher and wanted to be a writer, wanted to do a bunch of things. And uh, to pay the bills while I was in college, I started fighting fire on a, on a temporary summer basis with the, the Forest Service in Northern California. And uh, eventually what I realized was that um, spending my summers fighting fire was really the high point of my, of my year and that I, I liked it a lot better than what I was preparing to do with my college education. So um, I kind of cool. morphed, into a, morphed into a firefighter rather than a, than a teacher in training. I ended up going to graduate school in forestry and turned what had been a summer job into a career. Well, I feel like there's got to be a little bit more to that because I'm like, sometimes people will be like, oh, I did a roofing jobs or, you know, you get all kinds of different summer jobs or ways to get through college, but you just jumped into firefighting. That's yeah. it's like a eh, side job. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, well, I can remember clearly. So this is back when they had blackboards. I got do I have to explain everything to an audience? But ah, uh, no, you're going to be totally fine. There were, there were blackboards at the college campus I was going to school at and, uh, I remember one day on the side of the blackboard, it said, hey, want to fight fire? You know, come to this meeting. And uh, I thought, well, that would be great because I, I had, you know, after after wanting to be a professional baseball player, I always dreamed of going out and, uh, you know, helping helping manage public lands or, or park or something like that. That seemed like a great gig, you know, be a ranger and not not yeah. knowing really what that meant. And uh, so I saw this sign and I went to the meeting and they said, hey, yeah, you can come fight fire for uh, a couple months. They um, this organization I joined, uh, they, they got a bunch of college kids together and and put them into fire crews, 20 person fire crews and sent them off to fight fire uh, really anywhere in the state at that time. And then across state lines as well, really any place in the country. And uh, so, yeah, it was a bunch of, it was a bunch of like-minded college kids uh, organized. 
into into these crews. And uh, I started doing that. And then uh, after a few summers, I kind of ended up running one of those crews. And then I realized that if I tried, I might be able to turn that into a career. So um, so it was a nice transition kind of during during college, right after college. I call those my lost boy years when really didn't know what I wanted to do. Kept fighting fire in the summers, tried a couple full-time gigs that were not fire, realized those were horrible, and uh, and that I loved my summer work. And uh, so I really kind of realized that uh, given the right academic background, I went back to school, got this degree, and a graduate degree. Uh, with that right background, I could I could make a living at this, and it was still enjoyable and, uh, and, and there. So I just kind of launched on it. Uh, and I was a line firefighter. I, I came to Boise um, to be a smoke jumper, which is a... Uh, an initial attack firefighter. I got hired by the Bureau of Land Management and and came here to Boise from Northern California uh, while I was in grad school and uh, met my wife. And at some point in my career decided that um, fighting fire is great, but I was on the road all the time and I was um, taking some risks that were that were not in line with my family situation. I just had a couple uh, little kids. And so I decided to get into something a little less uh, exciting. Then line firefighting, I moved into, into fire management and uh, did some budgeting, did some planning, and eventually became what I am now, which is uh, the assistant director for fire and aviation for the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, that being said, I'm at, I'm at the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise. It's a place that's been here since the late 60s. Uh, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary as a, as a place, uh, not an organization, but a place. And this is where the nation uh, organizes its wildland fire response, and it has been that for, for 50 years, uh, you realize that wildfires don't recognize boundaries and that to, to manage fire across the landscape, you have to have all the partners uh, in agreement on what you're doing and, and to kind of contribute resources. So uh, we like to say that wildfire is um, one, of the, one of the places where this country is extremely successful and that we, uh, we don't pay attention to whose land is whose, um, who, you know, everybody contributes what they can, and everybody fights fire together. We, we adhere to the same standards, uh, share the same organizations and all contribute um, what we can to the, to the joint effort and manage things uh, kind of across the landscape. So what we do here at the Fire Center with all of our partners, and, and that includes agencies like the National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the National Weather Service, the U.S. Fire Administration, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the National Association wow. of State Foresters, that we are all here together along with DOD. We're all here together uh, jointly making decisions on how to how to get land, how to get uh, firefighting resources to where they're needed across the country. And uh, it's a it's a huge task, especially in a year like this. 2021 is when we're recording this. And, and uh, anybody who's living anywhere in this country has had uh, some kind of impact from fire folks who live close to close to landscapes that burn have had fire in their in their backyards, and uh, then folks as far as Washington D.C. have had their skies colored with wildfire smoke. Um, the last couple of years have been uh, exceptional fire seasons, and um, you know, we're dealing with one right now that's that's um, you know on par with any of the worst ones we've had. And so we, we together, all all those agencies, the federal partners, the local partners, the state folks. Uh, we're all trying to figure out a path forward with managing fire. But so so I'm really the the host of this campus here. It's a 60 acre campus in Boise. All those partners that I mentioned are here um, with their national offices, um, uh, trying to make good sensible decisions about policy, about standards, about um, uh, decisions where we, where we redirect resources from one, from one area of the country to another. 
And then uh, we also have some operational folks here. We've got a fire cache and we've got uh, some equipment development. We've got some smoke jumpers. We got a training center. So we've got a whole bunch of other stuff on campus here at Boise. And it's really um, center of excellence for wildland fire in the country. Something we're extremely proud of. And, and I'm really proud to be kind of the host, the, the chief administrator, I guess, if you will, mm -hmm. of the fire center. Well, I hear you on the, you know, firefighters, like wildfires, like just touching everybody. As I look outside my window right now, you know, this is August, 2021. I'm sitting in Utah County and, you know, it's like, it's all smoky and hazy outside. And like, not to mention, I remember last year uh, with some of the, in 2020, when some of the California fires, it, it looked like Blade Runner outside in San Francisco for a bit. It was quite overwhelming. Like Blade Runner's, that's a little apocalyptic, for me, but, I, <laughs> but I but I hear what you're saying. I guess Blade Runner without the drippy, rainy uh, landscape. So we would like a little of that. Exactly. That, you know, Blade Runner, Blade Runner had a little more moisture than we got now. But uh, <laughs> no, agreed. I, mean, I think people people in the West have experienced that the last couple of years. You, you can you know get on get on the web and and see the plumes of smoke coming up right now. A lot of it coming from the Dixie Fire in Northern California and just rotating around the West and really socking folks in. And, and I think that's where it becomes real for a lot of folks. You know, my kids uh, got suspended from cross country practice yesterday, right? Because because the air quality was was um, too poor, and and so I think I think people are really getting a sense that um, fire is a big deal, that we've got more fire in the landscape than we can handle. That yes, uh, fire is a national a national natural process, but um, but we need to we need to manage it appropriately, manage it appropriately, and and allow it where we can, and uh, fight it where we need to and manage our fuels better and make sure that we have enough firefighting resources to, to minimize the impact on folks where we can. Uh, but smoke is, is the great leveler. You know, it can come from Canada, it can come from California, it can come from Oregon, come from, come from Utah, come from right outside Salt Lake City and have an impact on people way downstream. And uh, yeah, the regional smoke impacts over the last couple of years have really been profound. And I think it's, it's caught the attention of a lot of folks who might not have thought before too much about wildfires. They might have thought, oh, that's just a Western thing. But when your skies are colored in the Midwest or in the East, uh, I think it, I think it makes it a little more real to folks that um, we got to do something different about how we're managing fire. And it sounds like just in, in your job, really in your career, you've really served in that whole gambit of like, you know, getting your hands dirty or, or wet, you know, actually being on the ground. And then now on the different side of like more administrative and managing and kind of like orchestrating where people need to go. Uh, do you also have to, have you, um, I'm guessing related to school, there's got to be all kinds of, you know, I mean, there's the nitty gritty, how do you fight a fire, but there's got to be a lot of science behind it of just thinking of the logic of where you think fire is going to go or how to mitigate stuff. Have you gotten involved in a lot of that stuff? Uh, so uh, absolutely. And so, you know, I went to school for that. Um, my, my graduate degree is wildland fire management, and, and that's a blend of uh, fire management practices and fire ecology uh, obviously, there are places on the landscape where we can we can live with a lot more fire, where um, where free roaming fire isn't going to be a big impact on folks, and and you can let it do its natural thing because because you need to. And there are uh, many places where we absolutely can't take that approach because if a fire gets up and and runs on us, it's going to have an impact on either people's livelihoods or their communities or their community values of some sort. So, uh, making those estimates of of where we can where we can um, be a little less aggressive about fire, either because it's doing its thing and, and it's a good thing, or because it's uh, unsafe or or um, maybe not worth the risk to put folks in into a certain area. Those kind of questions really depend on having a good idea of what the weather is ahead, 
how long how long a hot spell is going to last, where the winds are going to come, um, where fire is likely to go if 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 you don't contain it in in the first 24 or 48 hours. Those are um, decisions that managers have to make. They're really really difficult decisions to make. Um, really, when you when you balance you know, the safety of a fire crew and inserting a fire crew into a, into a spot versus uh, the risk to communities if if you don't fight fire aggressively and you don't put a fire out early. Those are those are really tough decisions, tough balancing acts. We have people who specialize in, in looking at a landscape and looking at, a, at an ignition and, and figuring out where it's likely to go. And, uh, you know, usually uh, we, we are on the side of caution. It's almost always better to just put a fire out early. If you don't know where it's going to go and you're not sure what the effects are going to be, then, then, you know, our standby is to, is to put it out early when it's easiest. If you let it grow big and then decide you need to put it out, it takes way more effort, way more people, way more risk. So it's always a balance between uh, aggressive initial response and and you know large fire management. If a fire gets up and and turns into 500,000 acre fire like we got going in Northern California, you know there's there's huge amount of risk to thousands and thousands of people both in the communities and in the firefighting community. And so you you know you definitely want to err on the side of of putting something out if you're not sure that you can handle what might happen if it gets away from you. And it seems like every conversation related to you know the Bureau of Land Management the word balance is always like inevitable, no matter what you end up talking about. So um, I, I know for, I mean, thinking for a lay person who doesn't know a lot about like wildfires or how they behave, um, but I know just of, of late, you know, there's all these news stories and all these like wildfires that have been happening that seem to be growing and growing and being more intense, you know, as the years go by. Um, maybe talk a little bit about, um, I, I know there's like the balance of like, do you clean up some of the brush or some of the, I guess, kindling for lack of a better word versus like, you know, there's some fires that are completely natural and that you want to burn out. Um, talk a little bit about like, how, how does that work or how does that come into your thought process of balancing out what proactive things you can do to, to prevent fires, but that sometimes you just want to let nature take its course to prevent something from just growing too big in the future. Sure. Um, so your question really, really hinges on uh, the the region of the country you're talking about and the kind of fuels you're talking about. So, for instance, okay. the, south, the southeast United States is is a classic example of a, of an environment that we've got where um, the managers down there, uh, private managers, state managers, federal managers of lands, for the most part, uh, want to let fire run across the landscape every couple of years, couple five years, because they've got they've got um, both vegetation that depends on fire, longleaf pine is a great example, vegetation that depends on power to pro on fire to propagate, and um, an undergrowth that'll grow back incredibly thick if you don't run fire through it really frequently. So millions of acres are burned in the southeast uh, every year in the interest of, of maintaining a landscape that's both healthy and resistant to wildfire. And, and so that's a great example of, of a place where fire is such a key and accepted management practice that um, that you know, it's, it's a viable tool there. Um, it's it, you know been going on for centuries. People who who've managed you know their own private farms or woodlots or or pastures have been using fire for for quite a while. And it's really where the country first learned that fire is a natural process and a great management tool where you can apply it. And I think the people who live in the southeast are used to smoke. They're used to people going out and burning in the woods. And they're used to the effect of it, which is, you know, um, smoke in some communities, smoke across some highways. They got to drive slow. They got to be careful. And and there's an expectation that fire is going to be in that landscape annually because because when you don't, 
apply fire in that landscape, things, things can get in trouble. You can be in trouble rather quickly. Uh, it's also flat country and it's relatively easy to burn there. You can burn, you know, thousands and thousands of acres fairly readily because, you know, you're burning, burning across essentially a flat landscape and it's, and it's easy to manage fire where fire has been used consistently across that kind of a landscape. You can burn into big blocks. Now move to the west and we've got landscapes that also need to burn. They burn on longer, what we call longer return intervals. So a natural return interval in the southeast might be, you know, a couple of years, a couple of five years. Some of our high country forested landscape in the west, um, think, of, think of Yellowstone, that's a great example, a lodgepole pine type situation. Um, those landscapes burn every couple hundred years uh, in, in a natural circumstance. And so that return interval is a lot greater. And when those kind of landscapes burn, they tend to burn in, in large swaths of very um, destructive or destructive maybe is the wrong word, but um, stand mm -hmm. replacement kind of fires. So Yellowstone in 1988 is a great example. You know, much of that landscape burned because uh, it needed to. It's lodgepole pine. Lodgepole pine needed uh, a hot fire to burn through there to release new cones and to kind of reset that landscape back into an early, what we call an early cereal stage. So you know, think of a mature forest needs to be cleared out so that you can grow a new one. So we got a lot of landscapes in the West that, that want to burn like that. They're, uh, you know, coniferous forests especially wants to burn a little, a little hotter, a little um, more destructively. And uh, it's a little harder to manage that, to manage fuels ahead of time. So we would love to be able to go in and take that Western landscape and do a lot more act, what we call active management and, and go in there and, and manage uh, forested, arrange landscapes a lot more aggressively and make sure that we don't have a huge fuels uh, buildup so that in the summer when we get a wildfire in there, the fire itself is easier to manage. Uh, you know, in this country, you know, there's some, there's some guesses out there, but um, say, you know, in pre-European pre settlement times, you know, 10 to 20 million acres burn annually across, across the West. Uh, it's, oh, wow. it's, hard, it's hard for managers, land managers, to achieve that with what we would call fuels management ahead of time. So when you think in the fall or the winter, go out with crews and do some cutting, do some clearing. 10 to 20, 10 to 20 million acres is, is, a, is, a, is a big task. Uh, and so we have a hard time keeping up with all the fuels management we need to do. There are certainly places in the West where there's some uh, overgrown environments where, where um, fuels have built up, you know, because we've suppressed fires really aggressively and, or, or the forests are just in that kind of stage. Um, so we got a lot of we got a lot of catch up to do in this country. I think that's what we've realized over the last decade is that we need to be a lot more aggressive about managing fuels ahead of time, about building um, control structures around communities. So so clearing out brush, giving giving folks a nice fuel break around community or community infra infrastructure, so that uh, we can manage fires uh, a little more easily as they approach towns, as they approach infrastructure. Uh, we're we're making a concerted effort to do more of that. And, uh, and so we get a lot of landscapes that want to burn. And what we want them to do is to burn in a way that we can control them. That when a fire starts in the middle of summer, uh, we can manage that fire without having a big impact on people's lives, on their livelihood or on their houses. And that could either be through aggressive initial attack or trying to confine a fire into a, into a, into a bowl, into a drainage, uh, et cetera. We also have in the rangelands, and you know, so the BLM is is largely a rangeland mm -hmm. management agency, and we got 200 million acres to manage. It's a big task. We've got rangelands that are really dominated by, um, in a lot of places, invasive grasses. Cheatgrass is a classic example. Cheatgrass likes to burn. It can burn uh, once or twice a year, even. Uh, it'll burn every year if you let it. 
and we are trying to manage cheatgrass and and really eradicate it where we can and get back into a into a more natural environment that's dominated not just by cheatgrass or other annual grasses but by perennial grasses and forbs and shrubs like like sagebrush uh, that's a big task um, blm has been working on that for a while and we actually need to be super aggressive about initial attack in those kinds of environments because we're they burn too frequently we're trying to get them to burn uh, way less, maybe every 25 to 75 years instead of every couple of years. Uh, so the BLN's task in the rangelands is really to try to reestablish more natural environment. And to do that, we need to we need to get fires to burn less, to really restrict the footprint of some of these big range fires that we can we can have in a given summer. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for for the BLM to have a you know 100,000, 200, 300,000 acre fire in the range. And uh, they're fast-moving fires. They're um, not—they're not the classic fires that people think of when they think of forest fires and you know okay. the fires that you see on CNN. But they're just as destructive. They—they they essentially allow the rangeland to maintain its dominance with uh, with cheatgrass, with species that aren't as productive as the ones we want. Uh, it has an impact on species like um, sage grouse or or mule deer. So. Um, so in the Bureau, in the Bureau of Land Management, we are um, really trying to manage these large range fires so that we can reestablish what looks like a more natural environment, more, more native vegetation, and more sagebrush for the benefit of all, really, of people who recreate, people who, people who hunt and fish, um, people who run livestock. Uh, everybody benefits from having a landscape that's not dominated by cheatgrass. And so for the Bureau, that means uh, trying to maintain small fire footprints so that we can get at the business of reestablishing more native vegetation. Yeah. I mean, it's wildfire definitely impacts literally everything the Bureau of Land Management does, but just everybody in the entire area. So, um, and I'd say like, as that becomes more, I don't know, like impactful on, on your average day person, people who live there, people who work, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about like, I mean, as it becomes more impactful on people's lives, obviously, you know, they read news stories or people generate their own opinions or what they think. I, I'm sure everybody loves to, to second guess what you should or should not be doing. I wonder if you could just talk to a little bit about what are maybe some misconceptions or um, things that people assume or think about like how, what it takes to manage fire and to manage like such a, like a huge organization that you're looking at. Um, what are just some of the common misconceptions, I guess? Well, okay. Um... One misconception is that um, my fire is the most important fire that's out there, and, and <laughs> that makes sense. This is a great this is a great fire season to demonstrate that. Um, no individual landowner agency has enough resources to manage their own their own piece of land, frankly. So so we count as a nation we count on the sharing of resources, and that's that's the whole purpose behind this fire center is to is to allow for the free sharing of resources across boundaries. It's the most effective way to do fire management because in a given year, in a given year, say, you know, my my patch of Idaho might not have a big fire season. And this year is a good example where this part of Southwestern Idaho where I am uh, hasn't had a big fire season. So when we don't have a fire season, what we can do is take some of our firefighting resources and send them someplace where they're needed like Northern California. Um, but but people tend to get this 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 conception that that what's going on in their backyard is the most important thing that's going on, and, and they don't recognize that there are other pieces of the of the United States that are also suffering through their own 
tragic fire season, right? And so right now we've got, you know, big fires going on in Western Montana. We've got big fires going on in Washington and Oregon and Northern California. You, you Matt, have a fire near you, <laughs> yep, just outside definitely. of, you know, outside of Park City or between Park City and Salt Lake. Well, I don't know where the hell it is now, but it, it's it's running all around you, right? So um, absolutely, so some, we're smelling it. So. You're smelling it, right? And uh, sometimes people don't don't get that, um, you know. Why can't I have five air tankers running on my fire right now? Well, it's because three of them need to be fighting a fire in Southern California, and, and we don't have enough stuff for everybody to be fully staffed for every fire that's going on in the landscape at a given time. We have to share resources because you know, we just have to move them around and, and put them where they're um, best used. So I think people sometimes don't understand that. They don't understand that um, you know, completely overstaffing one fire means that somebody else has to go without. Now I do think what we're we're looking at in this country is is um, we're we're recognizing that we don't have enough stuff as a nation that we we need more capacity that um, between climate change and some of the fuels management issues we have we we're not in a position right now to you know just let fire run across the landscape that nobody nobody is advocating anything like that and, and nobody's making those kinds of decisions but we need more capacity as a nation to manage fire. Um, given what we know about um, the state of the climate right now. I mean, we're exceedingly dry. We've been exceedingly dry for years. We've got forest die off in places. We're trying to catch up on some fuels management and, and we got a ways to go. So uh, in the meantime, we need more resources. We need more state, local, private, federal resources to, so, that, so that we can manage fires better so that when a big fire goes like the Dixie Fire in Northern California, for instance, right now, we got enough stuff to send there. We got enough crews. We got enough managers to, to go in there and make good decisions and try to protect folks and their livelihoods and their communities. So so we need a lot of stuff, but but regardless of how much stuff we have, um, people need to understand that you know there's other fires going on in the landscape when we manage fires nationally. And so we need to share. You know, sharing is caring. And uh, it's really, <laughs> really true with fire is that we we when we're slow, we need to send stuff away to our neighbors and friends. And uh, when we're busy, then we count on them sending stuff back to us. I think the other misconception is that we can just um, we just go out and and you know cut some trees and cut some brush and we'll be in good shape, right? And, and you know again, I, we've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of acres in the West to to manage. The fuels um, need active management in on many of those acres, and that's a huge task. It's it requires uh, some prescribed fire. In the off season, it requires some prescribed fire in season. It requires um, crews out there, you know, cutting brush or cutting trees. It requires some some uh, selective uh, logging in some places where it makes sense. Uh, it requires some clear cutting in some places. It requires it requires a, a broad a broad effort with all the tools and. And that is a generational investment that this country needs to make. I mean, and, and you know, I'll emphasize that that's a generational investment. It's like we've got a yeah. lot of fuels management to do, and you know, doing it this winter, it's like, oh, let's do it this winter, and then next summer we're not going to have a fire season. That's not how these things work. It's taken many generations for us to get into the position we're in. We've got people moving into into places in the landscape that they never lived before, and, and you know, people who expect to be protected from fire. And, and uh, we've got climate that's, that's been changing on us for decades and that continues to, to dry out in, in many places. We got winter snowpack that's not showing up the way it used to. We got water sources that are drying up that used to be full. 
So generally, I think the fire community is seeing this. We're seeing the climate impacts. We're seeing that we got a lot of fuels work to do. We're seeing that we don't have uh, the firefighting resources that we optimally would, would have. So we, we need to invest in kind of all phases of things. We need to get more firefighters out there, more professional firefighters, people who can make a living at it, who want to make a living at it. We need to be better at managing fuels. We need people to understand that managing fuels means that sometimes in the fall or the or the spring, even though they don't want it, they might have to live with some smoke while some folks do some prescribed fire. They might have to accept that uh, it means we're going to have to go out there and actively manage the landscape. We might be cutting some brush or cutting some trees that, that um, you know, it looks like we're doing destructive work. What we're really doing is trying to trying to change that landscape so that when a fire runs across it, it's, it's easier to manage. So people have to expect that the landscape's a, it's a dynamic uh, environment. It's not a static one. The, the, you know, you look out the back door and you see a forested landscape. Uh, that is a snapshot in time. And, and so we need to go out and actively manage that or else we're gonna lose it in catastrophic fires. So I think people need to accept that, 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 um, that we're in investing in firefighting resources, but also in fuels management, it's gonna mean some inconvenience to, for, the, for the greater good. And that idea of the greater good is really something that we all need to commit to that um, you know, we're gonna to have to pay for these things. We're gonna to have to accept some inconvenience at times to avoid uh, catastrophe. And I think sometimes people get, in the, they get the idea that, you know, well, you know, not in my lifetime, it's not gonna happen in my lifetime. It's like, well, um, you know, the odds are that in your lifetime, you're going to see something bad happen to a landscape that you really treasure. And so I think we're all, we all should accept that um, a little inconvenience and some active management is, is uh, well worth it in, in the long term. And so um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you know, this has been like 50 years, you know, for the fire center, um, you know, we're celebrating the 75th year for the existence of, you know, the Bureau of Land Management. So I'm just wondering, what are some of the, like the milestones or what's something that kind of stands out to you? And, and even more so, you know, if we look like 25 years in the future where we're celebrating the centennial and, you know, you're just right about now, you know, 25 years from now is when you, when you start retiring, thinking about retirement grant. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that right? Okay. <laughs> so just like, uh, what, what is something that like stands out over the last 75 years and, and what would you love to see? that we celebrate in the next, you know, for our centennial? So, well, a couple things. Um, one, I know in the Bureau, uh, we are taking way more seriously the, the idea that we need to more actively manage our fuels. And, and um, so my leadership has really tried to challenge the Bureau to, to treat uh, a million acres a year during the off season. So a million acres of fuels treated annually to try to catch up to some of the our greater fuels issues out there, a million is not enough, but a million is a good benchmark. So I so I think, tw if I looked, you know, a generation out, I would expect the bureau to be treating a couple million acres a year to be really trying to catch up to some of that fuels management workload that needs to go on. I think, um, in the past, it's it's it hasn't been an afterthought, but it, we we recognize that we need to do better, and and so I think. You know, we're going to probably hit a million acres maybe next year. You know, for an annual target, uh, I think I think our bureau and more representative of you know just symptomatic or emblematic of of all the bureaus, uh, we need to up our game. And I think after a generation, uh, we should be you know doubling or tripling that output annually. Figuring out how to do that and and making it happen. I think uh, as 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 a bureau person, I mean, I would love to see 
Um, I don't know how it's going to happen. It's going to be a combination of fire management, fuels management, and scientific investment in in species management. I would, uh, you know, I would like to see the bureau having reclaimed, you know, half of the cheatgrass that's out there across the landscape. I think uh, we're all aligned behind that. I think the nation hasn't invested in rangelands the way they tend to invest in forested landscapes. So, I, so I think the bureau um, having an answer to the cheatgrass issue, which is really a combination of 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 other efforts, um, that would be great to see. And I and I, I I always feel like there's a breakthrough about to happen that somebody's going to come up with a with a way to eradicate cheatgrass. It's going to break some of that cheatgrass cycle across our landscape, and we're going to have healthier uh, rangeland ecosystems across the West. It's a piece of the West that sometimes people don't notice. You know, you, you cross the Sierra Nevada and you drive to Denver, and uh, you know it's the great it's the great, it's a great basin, really. It's that great, um, it's that great country that sometimes people just want to drive through as fast as they can. It's an incredibly productive, valuable, and beautiful landscape if you if you appreciate it. And I think um, getting it getting it back to what it should look like would would be a great thing for this country. Um, I, what I've seen over my time here is, you know, what used to be what used to be called out as a as a huge conflagration. Is now considered just another day of business, right? So, um, you know, Yellowstone's a good example. There are a couple of fires, um, not necessarily in Yellowstone, but around there that went, you know, 100,000 acres, 200,000 acres, and that was a calamitous event. Um, I was laughing about this with somebody the other day that we used to be able to name, you know, just from our history, the big fires we were on. Yeah, I was on, you know, the Gorda Rat Fire in in on the Los wow. Padres National Forest in in California. We didn't even. We didn't even make note of those fires anymore, you know. Unless a fire like the Dixie Fire hits hits a half million acres, we tend to we tend to lose track of them these days. That is the the scale change that has happened over my lifetime and my my career. That what used to be a, a really earn huge notoriety as as a as a big cataclysmic event is now kind of a daily occurrence. That's a, a frightening prospect, and wow. and. And you know it, it's it's amazing what's changed, and and that is not through want of trying. It's not because people aren't trying to manage their fuels or aren't trying to catch fires. It's just that we are in a, we're in an environment now that is really volatile and really flammable, and um, it's it's a it's an incredible change. Um, you know, like I say, it, it, you know, fire like the Dixie fire that's going on right now. You know, if that had happened 20 years ago, uh, we would all talk about it, you know, nonstop. Now it's almost like a daily occurrence. It's it's business as usual. Last fire season was an incredible fire season in the Willamette Valley and the coastal ranges of California. I mean, that was some fire behavior in places that you know we've never never seen in our lifetimes. Not to say it's never happened before, but not not for us to witness it. Um, so those kinds of watershed events are happening on such a regular basis now. You know, we just we're just shaking our heads and saying, what's next? So. Um, so we need to get serious. Uh, we need to get serious about climate change and about dealing with with the effects of climate change, and manage things uh, as best we possibly can, and really try to catch up, um, because um, this is this is not you know this is not your father's fire environment. Yeah, it's, really. It's way different. And I feel for, you know, I don't fight fire myself anymore, right? I'm a manager. I still have line calls. I can still go out, but I but that's not my job anymore. My job is to you know, you know run spreadsheets and and uh, do the book work. Uh, but I feel for folks who are coming into business these days. I mean, it's it's exciting, you know. It's like, wow, okay, we got these big fires, but um, but man, they are working their fingers to the bone for all of us, and and I I treasure that. I honor their commitment, but I also feel for them because I I think they have a hard time ever hitting the pause button 
Um, if we're burning out folks, uh, we need to give them a better a better life, and uh, you know that means investing in in, in their livelihoods and in their well-being, and really getting them more help. And I think the nation needs to commit to that to to helping out our wildland firefighters and you know giving them the support they need. Ah, uh, yeah. Seriously, I just can't think of any topic. This is, as we were coming up with topics for the podcast, I couldn't think, think of anything that's more impactful, more serious, and just you know just pressing than how to deal with these wildfires and you know just uh, and then the work that, that you and your team are doing is and then yeah. and not only hurting the cats to like get everything else done, you know, it, it's well, just it's just insane. Yeah, I'm mean, not. So I'll tell you, you know, currently our our current our current effort is is multi. Faceted, right? So we need to we we know we need to work on fuels. We know we need to fight fire aggressively. We know we need to add to our resources. Uh, in the meantime, we're asking a lot of the people that we have employed in force right absolutely. now. Absolutely, absolutely. Many of them are not really well paid. Um, you know, some of them are college kids, but some of them are just entering into this career. And and so we've got some things we'd like to do. We'd like to make more of our seasonal workforce. So I was a seasonal worker, right? As I said before. Yeah, that's I, how you get your start. I started as a college kid. But uh, but we need we need more professional fire folks. We need folks to commit to this and to get folks to commit. They get a lot of other opportunities. People have a lot easier ways of making money than fighting fire. Some people just have it in their blood, but other people are going to make hard decisions between, you know, firefighting and something else that's not as difficult and that can that can you know pay the bills. So we need to we need to rebalance our workforce so that we have better opportunities for folks so that they will commit to us and they will be kind of long-term firefighters who will make good decisions, who will keep people safe, who will, you know, keep communities safe, who will, who will, who will, who will be the most effective people they can be. And to do that, we need to keep them around, right? So we're trying to invest in our workforce, exactly. give people better career opportunities, give them longer fire seasons. Frankly, you know, we end up laying off a lot of our firefighters after, after fire season's over and we just say, see ya, you know, see you next spring when, when uh, it's almost time to go again. Um, we're trying to we're trying to recommit to folks, give them give them better work, give them a longer tour, and give them the opportunity to actually take some time off during the summer. And it sounds crazy, you know. I, I think everybody who has a you know quote regular job, you know, treasures being able to go to the lake on the weekend, or, you know, go, <laughs> absolutely, go mountain biking, uh, whatever. You know, our fire folks tend not to have those opportunities, so we would like to give people a. a a good enough opportunity, kind of a more year-round opportunity so that they could take some time off in the summer so they could reconnect with their husband or wife and kids and and not be expected to just be on the road, you know, for six months solid, um, kind of just, just living with their coworkers and eating smoke all day. So we're, so we're trying to change our workforce. We call it workforce transformation, but we want to we give folks better opportunities so they'll stick with us and they can live a better life and fight fire. Uh, because we don't, you know, we don't, we don't want to constant turnover. Mm -hmm. Like every other employer, uh, we want experienced folks who make good decisions and, and um, bring a wealth of knowledge and experience to their daily lives. To do that, we need to, we need to give them a life that they can actually sustain. So we're trying to, we're trying to boost their wages a little bit, give them better opportunities and give them a future so that they'll stick with us. And it just seems as things move on, climate change, that like this just keeps getting just more and more essential. So it's, it's critical to keep people fresh. It does. It does. And that, and that, you know, that other piece we, we just hinted at earlier is that um, people are also with, with pandemic inspired uh, telework. Exactly. People are, people are working in places that they've never worked before and they're, they're 
you know, working out of cabins, they're working in small towns, they're working up in the woods. And I think there are some different expectations sometimes of, of some people who've moved from an urban environment into a, into a more rural environment. And so I think those people need to be, need to understand as well um, what they've what they've done, right? It's like, uh, you know, I've got a cabin in the woods like many other people. I don't have any expectation that fire is not going to have an input to, impact on my cabin in the woods. Uh, that's that's the devil the devil in the details, right? It's the it's the deal you make. Um, yes, I love having a place out there, and yes, I love you know living close to nature. But um, nature, it, you know, it's impacted by fire. Fire is a key principle. So uh, we need that expectation that when folks make that leap, that um, fire is part of it. Uh, there's no place in the West that fire is not an integral part of. You know, and and so uh, I think. That's that's one of those great awakenings people need to have. It's like you can't banish fire from the landscape. It's gonna it's gonna occur in some intervals, and uh, you have to be ready for it. Grant, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I'm just you know I want to give a shout out to if, for folks if you want to learn more, you always check out on Twitter at BLM Fire. If you really want to nerd out though, you can go to nifc.gov nifc.gov. Um, but Grant, thank you so much. This is this has been very educational and very enlightening. No, no worries, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right, later. Bye.